more specifically, I am joining this podcast tonight from Edit Suite 20 here at uh, Warner Brothers. And if I could just figure out the password to this guy's computer, I could log in and do all kinds of things to the Zack Snyder Justice League. I could tell you about the next Flash. I could put myself in the next Batman. If I could just get this guy's password, I could literally do it right now. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Time stamp March 22nd, 925 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Yes, we are here. He's getting ready. (laughs) Flyover Country with Scott Jennings brought to you by Sean Southerd and his beverage of the evening is Starry. A lemon lime zero sugar caffeine free flavored soda. To be clear, this is not, not actually an endorsement. It just happens to be what he's <laughs> drinking tonight. But, but Sean, if they want to sponsor the show, sorry, if you're listening, there's no GABA in it or GABA or whatever it is. The Zen- it was in the Zenify. Oh, yeah, yeah. Zenify, okay. if you're listening. <laughs> I want to thank both of you for going off the rails before I did. Sean, <laughs> Kevin Grotus here, Jared Crawford, Scott Jennings in New York. Scott, I gave the time st- timestamp because. Uh, you know, quick moving, uh, you know, uh, machinations here of the of the news cycle with uh, with with Donald Trump pledging or predicting last week that by Tuesday of this week he would be arrested. And, and as we're recording this on late Wednesday night, it hasn't happened yet. And there seems to be somewhat of a retread of maybe some witnesses before the grand jury now, and it's could be kind of dragged out here. I just want to make clear about this. So it could be happening by the time this podcast is is heard uh, by our flyover country uh, devotees. But in the meantime, where do you think this stands, and and, and what's your, your latest uh, oh, take from the CNN desk there? You're joining us from New York. On Are, are people kind of just ex- expecting it now, or is it now that there's some, some doubt about it? What, what do you think? More specifically, I am joining this podcast tonight from Edit Suite 20 here at uh, Warner Brothers. And if I could just figure out the password to this guy's computer, I could log in and do all kinds of things to the Zack Snyder Justice League. <laughs> I could tell you about the next Flash. I could put myself in the next Batman. I, if I could just get this guy's password, I could literally do it right now. Sadly, I can't find it. So I'm tantalizingly close to having to be able to edit myself into one of these superhero movies. But Just go on chat GPT and ask them for a suggested password (laughs) for someone who works at Warner Brothers. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) that's the combination of my luggage. (laughs) Um, I I am in New York. I have been here for a few days. I'm on Panda Watch or Indictment Watch uh, for (laughs) Donald Trump, and uh, uh, it hasn't happened yet uh, despite his predictions. I did see tonight that his campaign claimed to have raised a million and a half dollars since he made the announcement. Uh, that he was going to be indicted. Uh, the grand jury met on Monday, not Tuesday. We thought they were meeting Wednesday. They did not meet. They have also been meeting on Thursdays, but it's not clear as we record this whether they are going to meet on Thursday or if they're going to recall some witnesses. There was a rebuttal witness that the defense requested earlier this week who apparently, I mean, it feels like, just as a layperson observing, may have said some things that upended the apple cart, because, you know, through the weekend, it was like a virtual certainty. Everybody thought that an indictment was coming and still not here. And maybe it will come. Maybe it will come. But this whole case depends on, I mean, just let's just take stock of where it is. It's a seven-year-old case about paperwork involving sex. I mean, in the history of sex, no one's ever had to do more paperwork about it than Donald Trump. But we got a seven-year-old misdemeanor, a sex paperwork misdemeanor, that the DA is trying to contort into a felony. And this is the same DA, Alvin Bragg, who has downgraded all kinds of prostitution and drugs and gangbangers and God knows what else here in New York City, down from felonies down to misdemeanors. So you've got violent people getting misdemeanors and sex paperwork getting turned into felonies. Now, if I were a grand juror, this would strike me as strange because the legal theory he's using to get it into a felony is is novel i mean the reporting on this this is called it novel like this is a real stretch and so if a if a a witness were to come in and and even blow a little bit of a hole in it yeah i could see how would how would derail the thing so where do we stand donald trump is facing possible indictment i'm not sure if it's probable anymore and we don't know when the grand jury is going to come back and return it i do know this if he gets indicted 
Uh, he won't appear right away. He would have a few days, I guess, to negotiate his surrender, which means you show up, you get fingerprinted, uh, you get photographed, and they take you into the courtroom. And uh, and all that would happen, you know, I guess in a relatively short period of time after he comes and, and surrenders. I mean, I don't know what you guys think, but my general view of it, Joe, is even Republicans that don't want to vote for Donald Trump again, and I know a few, think this is – I mean, they think it's baloney. They think this is stupid. And it's either stupid because they think there's bigger fish to fry, like the Georgia cases or the January 6th stuff or the the uh, the other paperwork case going on, the one, the one over in Mar-a-Lago with the classified documents. Uh, and they also think that Alvin Bragg is a politically motivated partisan prosecutor who is decided that his job is not to prosecute the law, but just to prosecute Trump on anything like they in their mind. There's a lot of Democrats who think, look, this guy's never been held accountable. No one's ever gotten him for anything. He seems to get out of everything. So it doesn't matter what he gets indicted for as long as he's held accountable, even if it's on, you know, a BS case like this one. So I, I actually think there's a there's a universe where this is helping him, at least in the short term. Uh, and, and that's somewhat reflected in the polling right now. I'm not sure that being reminded uh, that he had sex with Stormy Daniels uh, is ultimately good in the long term for him. Uh, But in the short term, with Republicans who have a reflexive habit of rallying around Trump when they think he's being unfairly persecuted, maybe of of some short term benefits. So that's the report here from uh, CNN, uh, Joe, on Wednesday night. When we wake up in the morning about lunchtime on Thursday, maybe maybe we'll know more. Maybe we won't. By the way, at least two different uh, fellow panelists on CNN this past week, uh, either across the table from you or sitting next to you, would not have disagreed with what you just described as far as that accountability factor. I mean, they pretty much said that almost directly, uh, you know, yeah. verbatim as to say he needs to be held accountable. It doesn't matter what, how legitimate this charge is or what the statute of limitations is or even what, you know, how much of a technicality they're catching him on. It's it's Al Capone and tax evasion. It's it's basically whatever you can do to to get to do the perp walk to get him fingerprinted and and to hold him accountable. That's going to be what we've been waiting for all this time. If you've been on that side, Kevin. But if they wanted real accountability, you would think that they would, you know, go for the home run, not this like Scott said, novel idea of maybe. I I think they're trying to ca- yeah, classify but, this as a campaign fine. So they they may get the perp walk. But shouldn't they be really wanting the conviction? And I think, I mean, I'm, I'm no well, lawyer, that, but that's, that, a, that's really that, that's up in the good, air. This is a great question for Alvin Bragg. Um, I, I think it's, even if he does indict based on what the reporting has been about the possible charges, I mean, you know, we haven't seen the charges and we haven't even seen all the evidence they have. Uh, but, but what's been reported is that it's going to be this business records, improper business records turned into a, uh, a felony, a low-level felony, you know, a commission of another crime. Uh, and, um, it, it, I mean, it, it feels like a stretch, and there's no sure bet he wins a conviction. And so what's worse for Alvin Bragg, to not bring an indictment after all this rigmarole or to go to court and lose to Donald Trump? I don't know what's worse for him, but it strikes me he's in a little bit of a pickle here, Jared. Yeah, uh, Joe, you mentioned the Al Capone and tax evasion. That's obviously not an uncommon thing that, uh, prosecutors or attorneys or DAs do right. Sometimes you get gangbangers on stolen c- cars crossing state lines when you know that they have homicides on their rap sheet. And you sort of use the system to kind of turn against them. It's it's not particularly uncommon. What's so uncommon about this is you don't go in saying, "Hey, that guy, I'm going to go after him no matter what," and kind of run on this. And of course, when it's a political opponent and and the hypocrisy of of Bragg and what he's done with real violent criminals and then Donald Trump, it does feel like it's been trumped up for lack of a better term to just, to just get him no matter what. Right. And that's what I think is wrong. It's not a solid case. It's not undeniable. It's not recent. You know, like all those things, there's so many holes in this just from like a lay person's view that you're like, this is what they're going after him for. It's almost, backwards i mean it's it's the opposite of what prosecutors are supposed to do they're supposed to find a crime find the culprit charge them yeah. not find a person they don't like yes and then draw a path through the criminal code that eventually will get them in handcuffs this is all being done by, by the way in the backdrop of new york city where this prosecutor has made it his mission to turn a bunch of violent criminals loose 
and to turn violent felonies into misdemeanors. And uh, I think New Yorkers, honestly, I mean, at least a lot, at least some of them must be a little uneasy about the idea uh, that you could be into all kinds of gangbanging and drug dealing and prostitution. And that somehow becomes a misdemeanor, but a seven-year-old paperwork misdemeanor becomes a felony. Like, what are what are our priorities here, and what kind of resources are being spent on paperwork misdemeanors when they should be spent on cleaning up the streets of these cri- these violent criminals who are running wild in New York City? To, to echo Scott's point, in 2022, Alvin Bragg reduced 52% of all felony charges to misdemeanor. 52%, half of the, the felony cases that came in front of him were reduced to misdemeanors. He's now taking a misdemeanor and trying to elevate it to a felony. Again, it, it, it reeks of hypocrisy. And, 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 and Scott, as, you, as, you, as uh, one of the legal analysts on CNN with you on Wednesday night pointed out, even the felony, they're using this novel device to be able to get up to a felony level. It is like a level felony E. It's like it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's almost like a the, it's the minor league felony, of felony. light. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not quite felony all the way light. there. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it makes – when you sort of dig into this, it, it just – it makes little sense for so many reasons. And now you have people out there saying, well, you know, they do prosecute people for business records. I defy you to find one that's seven years old on a misdemeanor. I mean, look, we know across the country um, prosecutors and cops are stretched thin on trying to track down actual criminals. And God knows I don't condone Donald Trump's behavior here, having sex with Stormy Daniels while maybe his wife was pregnant or had just given birth. I mean, it's it's terrible, and I'm not here to defend this behavior. But I got to tell you, uh, are we really going to criminalize this on a paperwork technicality? And are we, we really going to contort it into a felony for political reasons? I, I, I talked about this um years ago, uh, having lived through the Bush administration. But but this feels like a continuation to me uh, of a trend that we saw and, and maybe are still seeing now, the criminalization of politics. Like, I'm going to take whatever legal processes I can find and absolutely criminalize my political opposition, whether it's real or not, whether it's flimsy or not, whether I ought to be focusing on this or not. It's just the criminalization of politics. Now, I think what's being investigated in Georgia, and I think the January 6th stuff, and even the the Mar-a-Lago investigation, these are all real things that deserve to be investigated by serious people. But it strikes me that Bragg is just really engaging in rank criminalization of politics because he thinks that's what his voters want. Just, I, I mean, what, what? I mean, you guys tell me, but it's likely to set off a cycle of Republicans saying, "Well, if you're gonna if you're gonna indict our guy for some." Baloney, I guess we're going to indict some of your people. And then they're going to, I mean, is this really the arms race we want for American politics? I think not. Well, and, and my thing, too, is, you know, you think about how this this all started is like, you know, if you would wind the clock back to the 1990s and think about how the Democrats back were defending Bill Clinton for I- anything and everything that he ever did. He could never make a mistake, even even with some of the most as we would say back then in the 90s, some some really serious accusations about infidelity in a marriage and all this sort of thing. Well, and a, and felony perjury. Absolutely. But they, they defended him till kingdom come. I'm, and so, like, at the same time, it's like there has to be some level of consistency, don't you think, Scott? Yeah, and I also think there's a conversation to be had here about this, the campaign finance. I mean, basically what they're arguing is is that by Donald Trump paying Stormy Daniels, hush money to be quiet about their tryst, which, by the way, as icky as it sounds, is a common thing. Pay somebody to be quiet about something is called an NDA. Happens all the time in corporate America, and I'm sure Donald Trump's done it a thousand times in his life. This is a common item. But what they're saying is, is that specific one, because of when it happened, must, must be classified as a campaign expenditure. But if that's what you believe, then you could basically apply that logic to anything else you spend money on. Sean got a haircut today. Did he do that because he thought he'd look better and voters would be more inclined to vote for him? Kevin got a college degree. Did he pay for that thinking someday voters might want somebody for a college degree? And so when you go down this road of of essentially criminalizing what is for Donald Trump normal behavior just because of politics, it, it opens a Pandora's box of questions about – well, what else is a campaign contribution? Because you, 
you could start making a, uh, if you're going to stretch this one, you could stretch a lot of things. And I just, you know, we already have a lack of faith in politics and politicians and the whole system anyway. And I just, I feel like this is going to make it worse for literally no reason. So uh, if any candidate is listening out there, never get a haircut ever again, because Scott will talk about it forever and ever. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying, did you do it for political reasons? I, mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what you did. To the earlier point, first of all, and this is somewhat of a pushback. Because that's why I'm here. <laughs> Donald Trump brought all this on himself, in the sense that he is he is an amoral character. He's you know, and and all the other kind of the mess and mud that's out there. He invites that kind of scrutiny. Now that said, I'm not saying the prosecutor is doing the legal thing or the correct thing to do that. I'm just saying Donald Trump, you know, he's he's made a lot of beds and you know, so to speak. <laughs> and and, uh, like and th- so that's that that's that. The other th- question I have for all of you on the panel here on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is whether – I'm just going to share my observation and see if you have a similar thought about this. As an institutionalist, as somebody who is a, uh, a, who, a, who is a great admirer of the presidency as, as, and, and the presidents over the years, I just – I really am uh, regretting or dreading, I should say, the prospect of a former president – being perp walked, being fingerprinted, that this whole kind of banana republic type of, of denigration of the institution. The institution was already denigrated by a number of people, including Trump. But I'm kind of getting used to the idea because we've been talking about it for a week. And I'm just curious, I mean, are you, or is this something like with, I was thinking about Bill Clinton, like as you pointed uh, mm-hmm. out, uh, Sean. Back when all that happened, I mean, in some ways, the presidency was, in recent memory, that's when it was the most sullied by personal conduct or misconduct, literally having an affair with an intern, taking advantage of an of, of someone in a, in a, in a, in a, here's a boss and inferior, you know, uh, uh, subordinate uh, you yeah. know, relationship. I mean, everything about that is not just immoral, but it's illegal. And on top of that, then lying about it, all the things about that, but we kind of got used to it. I mean, it's not as part of just the history, whatever else. Well, so am I making too big of a deal well, out of my dreading the whole prospect of a president being perp-walked? I mean, may, maybe, but at, at the same time, it's like that's why I think that fundamentally I think the Democrats ruined this whole entire thing because they they chose the, to not dabble in the politics and morality anymore. They gave up on it, and now they want us to to deal on a, a new level of playing field. And until they atone for for that – and all the sins of the Clinton administration, I don't want to hear from them. I don't. I don't care until they until they want to be have some equity <laughs> in this process. Then I'll have a conversation with them. Jared, I don't. I don't know that it would be scarring to me to see a former president or current leading candidate do the 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 perp walk. Uh, I think if we believe, as I think our side believes, in sort of law and order. If, if there is truly a crime that has been committed and it's legitimate that he like any other person should should you know face the music I think I think the problem with this case is it feels artificial in so Political. many ways it's like and, it's shoehorned it's yeah. a shoehorned and, case and so I think I in this case there would be part of me that that has that sort of banana republic what what are we doing here kind of attitude but I mean if Donald Trump was to truly shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, well, I would want him, it, you know. Well, uh, hey, as, as it turns out, he w- probably would have been better off shooting somebody <laughs> like that because in New York, you, you get misdemeanors for violence and you get felonies for paperwork. And so I guess I guess maybe maybe he was onto something when he when he said that back then. Kevin. Yeah, it would probably be a bad thing for the institution. I, I'm sympathetic to Jared's point here that I, I think we live in a, a nation of laws where we're all supposed to be held accountable to them. But I don't, I don't think that's what we're talking about here. I think we're talking about political prosecutions by people who are making their mind up that this person is guilty and we got to find the way to, to get him there be, while he's also running a political campaign. I, I don't think this has anything to do with the law. Scott, political implications. We're already seeing uh, Trump plays the victim better than any other politician and his poll ratings since this has kind of been trumped up all week long have actually drank <laughs> have actually <laughs> thank you have actually ticked up 
uh, in this situation. Mm-hmm. So is is that going to be? Do you think that even if they've already kind of uh, uh, you know he's already benefited from this in the, in the first place, you know, perhaps this arrest might be the best thing going for him so far in his reelection campaign. Yeah, I, I think there, some of this may be a sugar high. You know, um, some of his polling, and I admit he has gone up. It's obvious in, in some of the higher quality polls. Um, I think some of it also just has to do with the fact that he's actually running a campaign. I mean, remember, Donald Trump's a declared candidate. He has a team. They're running a campaign. They're trying. And so he may be just picking up some support by actually, you know, uh, trying to get it. Um, It strikes me that he's always had a high floor but a low ceiling. And um, and so he's never going to drop too low. But I still question whether he can get over 50 in a primary. And so, you know, if you're, if you're looking at the long-term impact of this and you, and say you accept that maybe it helped him in a, in some near or medium term, is, is this really the thing that's going to push him back to majority status in the party? I mean, remember he didn't get a majority of the votes in the 2016 primary either, right? He's still depending on fragmentation. And if you look at some of the polling that shows DeSantis slipping, DeSantis isn't losing support to Nikki Haley or Mike Pence or any of these other one percenters. He's he's losing support to Trump. So it's still very much a, you know, people going back and forth between the top two options. I think in, if I were in DeSantis' shoes right now, I'd probably be mostly focused on trying to just consolidate that non-Trump vote as soon as I can. Because as long as you've got seven or eight people pulling one to five percent, it's always going to be hard for DeSantis to be competitive in a multi-headed primary, uh, uh, even if he's sitting at, you know, in the 30s somewhere, 30, it's going to be hard to grow to 45 or 50 if you've got eight or nine ankle biters, you know, taking a, a percent or two each. So then, Scott, can you can you give us your your experienced read on how DeSantis is kind of reacting to all this news? I mean, he's getting asked about it all the time and it's not his job. I think he said it's not my job to comment on this lawsuit in, in New York. But he initially kind of downplayed it all, and then he got attacked for it. Then I think he made another statement. How much is he focused on responding to the play-by-play of what's happening to Trump versus capturing the rest of the available uh, base out there? Well, the way he is, I thought his first statement responding to this, because, you know, the Trump people were going insane over the last weekend that he wasn't immediately dropping everything to to defend Donald Trump at all costs, which I – like, I don't understand. Like, why do the Trump people think their chief rival for the nomination should be dropping everything to, to be Donald Trump's press secretary? I mean, that's not how any of this works. And maybe they've just gotten so used to people falling all over themselves to defend him that they can't fathom that somebody wouldn't. But anyway, when he finally made a statement, he said he, he took a shot at the prosecutor, which I think all Republicans agree with. And then he said what he said, what's true. I don't know anything about what it takes to pay off a porn star after an affair. I don't know anything about that. And what he was doing was reminding people of one of his core messages, which is with Trump, you get constant personal drama and chaos with me. You just get somebody who's no drama, no chaos and laser focused on putting points on the board. I thought it was a great tactic. Florida standard. Uh, We wanted to know what your thoughts are on the rumored Trump indictment. And if you have any role in it, um, if charges are brought on him, will you have any role in extradition to New York? So I've seen rumors swirl. I have not seen any facts uh, yet, and so I don't know what's going to happen. But I do know this. The the Manhattan district attorney is a Soros-funded prosecutor. And so he, like other Soros-funded prosecutors, they weaponize their office to impose a political agenda on society at the expense of the rule of law and public safety. He has downgraded over 50% of the felonies to misdemeanors. He says he doesn't want to even have jail time for the vast, vast majority of crimes. And what we've seen in Manhattan is we've seen the the, the crime rate go up and we've seen citizens become less safe. And so you're talking about this situation with, and look, I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to, to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that. But what I can speak to is that if you have a prosecutor who is ignoring crimes happening every single day in his jurisdiction, and he chooses to go back many, many years ago uh, to try to use something about porn star hush money payments 
you know, that's an example of pursuing a political agenda and weaponizing the office. And um, so I think that that's gr- fundamentally wrong. Great response there from Sasanta Scott. Oh, I mean, it, it was it was terrific and, and threaded the needle. Now, the Trump people went crazy. You know, he he was he didn't defend Trump enough. I, I just don't understand this. Like, it's not DeSantis's job to jump in front of the train for you. Uh, but, you know, the Trump Trump did get used to I think most Republicans having a willingness to defend virtually anything. And uh, I mean, you saw some other presidential candidates this week, this Vivek. You know, Ramaswamy uh, character, you know, he spent an entire day, you know, tweeting about how every candidate should follow my lead as we help Donald Trump defeat this brother. I know you want Donald Trump to call you. I know. I know you want him to pay attention to you. He ain't going to. I'm sorry. He just he's not. And what, what, you, I mean, what you hear in this answer from DeSantis, though, is that he like out trumped Trump. Right. Like like he's more disciplined in that he. He he could deliver an actual message about the prosecutor that appealed to the conservative base, and then he does what Trump is pretty good at doing when when Trump was at his best in messaging, which is to just do a little cast aside phrase that then everyone gets all excited, like people were laughing, people were like, "Oh my gosh, he said that!" But it was a little something for everybody there. I mean, it, it was literally like like going to like an. Uh, like a Chinese buffet and like having every single like selection of everything that you wanted to have. One of the things that Trump people were mad about was this whole idea that Ron DeSantis should somehow mobilize the Florida national guard or whatever to prevent the extradition. (laughs) I mean, first of all, the constitution reigns supreme here. He doesn't have any choice in the matter. Does that matter by the way? Does the constitution doesn't matter? But you, I mean, it just it, it, the, the the absolute lunacy of the they were madder at DeSantis and they were brag the guy that's actually doing it. It was crazy. Let me ask you about the. Let's listen first of all to a highlight of uh, one of Ron DeSantis's responses to uh, Pierce Morgan uh, this this past week. Or actually, it's going to be I guess as this podcast is being released on Thursday, it'll be tonight on uh, on March twenty third. And first of all, Scott, I mean, we'll, we'll listen to a quick highlight here, and then your response to Ron DeSantis' choice of interviewer to kind of do his, his rolling out party here. People have been quite kind of scathing. They've said you're house-trained Donald, your Diet Coke to his <laughs> full Coke, right? You've heard all this stuff. What are the differences between you? I mean, I know, what I, I know him very well. I'm, having now spent time with you, I, I could immediately identify a few differences. But what do you think of the differences? Well, I mean, I think there's a few things. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the approach to COVID w- was different. I mean, you know, I would have fired somebody like Fauci. Uh, I think that he got way too big for his britches, and I think he did a lot of damage. Uh, I also think just in terms of my approach to leadership, you know, I get personnel in the government who have the agenda of the people and share our agenda. If you bring your own agenda in, you're gone. We're just not going to have that. So the way we run the government, I think, is no daily drama, focus on the big picture, and put points on the board. And I think that that's something that's very important. So, Scott, A, Pierce Morgan, and B, his overall direction here. Well, Pierce's stuff, I guess, runs on the Fox Nation platform, and it's part of the whole Murdoch Empire, you know, the Murdoch people have been very willing to give DeSantis a platform. So I, I wasn't actually all that surprised. Plus, you know, I think I think Pierce, I mean, just listening through what we've we've heard released so far, I mean, he gave DeSantis a fair opportunity to present himself without, you know, being pilloried for 60 minutes by, you know, somebody who wants to talk for 59 minutes about the don't say gay bill or the Disney stuff or whatever. And so. I, I saw I saw this as a pretty good choice. Remember, DeSantis, part of his thing is non-engagement with mainstream media. I mean, you know that that interview is not going to happen on most of the mainstream media political news stuff you see. And so I think you're you're going to see him choose non-traditional or or maybe off the beaten path interviewers and venues because he just doesn't trust and doesn't want to engage in the media outlets that, that frankly Republicans hate. I mean. The fact that he picked Pierce Morgan, uh, you know, what if he had picked Meet the Press? What if he had picked the New York Times? What if he had picked The View? Like, you think Republicans <laughs> would have liked that? He definitely would have Probably gotten. A, he definitely would have got a, a fair shake from Whoopi and Joy, don't you think? Yeah. So, so I, I just think we're going to continue to see this, and and I I don't mind it honestly. I, no one's ever really tried this before. I mean, it's 
it's going to be interesting. Like I, I'm, I, I have a hunch Republicans are going to like it because it, it's like put your money where your mouth is. A lot of Republicans say I hate the media, uh, but very few are willing to go full shun the media because they crave the attention. You know, that's that's going to be one of the differences between DeSantis and Trump. DeSantis is going to say, you know, he's going to tell you he hates the media, but deep down he craves their approval. He craves their attention. And I couldn't care less about it. That I think that that whole line of attack is going to sell in this primary. And as far as his overall message there, contrasting himself with Trump? Yeah. Well, he, he's he's promoting himself as somebody who is not going to be embroiled in constant drama, but is, is going to be involved in constantly achieving things. And I think one of the great sort of defining issues of this primary is going to be how do Republicans see the presidency? Do you want a commentator and a pundit? Or do you want a doer? Do you want someone who can actually execute on the things that you care about? And it's one of the things about Trump. I mean, he he sort of punditized the presidency. He's the pundit in chief. He's the commentator in chief. And, and a lot of Republicans think that's what the job is for. That's how little faith or uh, expectations they have out of government. And the best I'm ever going to get is somebody who basically says the things that I wish, you know, I want to say. And, and now he's saying it from the biggest megaphone in the land. And so I think that's actually one of the greatest debates here. Do you want a pundit or do you want a doer? And I think that's, I don't know. I don't know who's going to win that debate, but it's, it's really going to define this primary. Last week's pod, we uh, I gave my reaction and then Scott kind of talked me off the ledge here as far as what Ron DeSantis was saying about Ukraine being more of a territorial fight versus didn't want to use the word invasion. Maybe a little bit of cleanup in the conversation with Pierce Morgan about uh, Putin and Russia. It was Putin. Look, I think he's got grand ambitions. I think he's hostile to the United States. But I think the thing that we've seen is he doesn't have the conventional capability to realize his ambitions. And so he's basically a gas station with a bunch of nuclear weapons. And so for us, one of the things we could be doing better is utilizing our own energy resources in the United States. We could be permitting natural gas pipelines mm-hmm. from Marshallis, doing a lot in, uh, in, in Alaska. That's where he gets all his power, and obviously he's influenced Europe uh, by, by having so much energy. So the way to hit Putin is to hit him with energy. But I do think you look back, all the defense analysts and me in the past, we overestimated his conventional capability. This has been a huge mm-hmm. blunder for him, uh, huge costs. And, uh, you know, we'll see what ends up happening with his longevity and, and, and power. But, but this, has been a, this has been a loss for them. There is a move now to hold him accountable for war crimes, bombing maternity hospitals and genocidal activity in parts of Ukraine, wiping out whole cities, Mariupol and others. Would you support that? I mean, I think he is a war criminal. This ICC, we have not uh, done that in the United States because we're concerned about our soldiers or mm. people uh, being brought under it. But I do think that, that he should be held accountable. Scott, is that enough? Uh, and well, first of all, his response overall, is it adequate? And do you think that he felt some pressure by some of the blowback he got after the, uh, the initial comments on Ukraine? I thought the answer was great. Um, and um, uh, I mean, that, that position he just outlined is a very reasonable mainstream Republican position. Uh, and and I, think, I think it was well done. I think I've seen tonight, you know, a lot of the Trump people, the, the very online Trump people are, oh, he called Putin a war criminal, you know, like that's a bad thing. Well, it was just a, a couple of months ago that Donald Trump said Vladimir Putin was guilty of committing genocide. And so and Trump's been in the same space as well as it relates to describing Putin. All of a sudden, like attacking Putin has become like a marker for, for some of these Trump folks. Like if you attack Putin, you're not, you know, you can't be real MAGA. It's 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 very strange. But I think that answer right there to the average voter, average American, would sound like a pretty mainstream American foreign policy response. And, you know, DeSantis has never advocated for anything beyond what we're doing, which is helping defeat. He's never advocated for escalation. He's never advocated for putting boots on the ground. Uh, but he's also never advocated for just a, a dramatic uh, pullout and let Putin run wild in Europe. And I recognize there may be a handful of isolationists who believe that. But I think most Americans don't believe that. Uh, and would rather not see Putin and his best friend, Xi, uh, who was, you know, they were meeting this week to, you know, hatch a plan to essentially take over a big chunk of the world. Well, and that's why I think that a lot of the, the reaction to DeSantis's original comments on Tucker Carlson, where they read this whole statement and did all this stuff, and we talked about it on here, was just a total overreaction to, yes. to what he actually said. Yes. Um, kind of cherry picked. Yeah, they cherry picked. And, and, 
Tucker might have mischaracterized. I mean, it it was if you read what he said, it was totally by by the New York Times and by the Trump people alike. It was totally mischaracterized. It was totally like he he said, you know, we should provide some support to these people. But here are the limits. Here are the red lines of what we should not go past. Now, everyone jumped on it being, quote unquote, a territorial dispute. Guess what? The Council on Foreign Relations, a well-respected foreign policy organization in the United States, characterizes it also as a territorial dispute. Didn't they change their website now to not call it that? After he oh, said it? After, after he said it, course. they changed their website? Oh, right? I yeah. think so. So, so like, here, here's the thing. Like, the goalposts are changing because because everyone everyone is, like, now worried that DeSantis is, like, playing them and is smarter than everybody else. And so I, I just I just think it's really important that there was to, to acknowledge there was a total overreaction and mischaracterization of what he said originally. Like he, he gave a full blown statement that everyone could read for themselves. But did everyone go read the actual statement for themselves or did you just read the news coverage about it? You know what I'll add about both DeSantis's statement. and the- Wait, are you are you saying I'm supposed to read the articles and like read the source material? If, if, like, if, no, I, if I can headline, say any if I can say anything, <laughs> if anyone is ever listening to me, please read. <laughs> Just please read things yeah, in the, the full. Please read. Please clap. Please. All of American politics right now is one huge game of telephone. All anybody knows <laughs> is what they heard somebody say, who has also heard what somebody said, who saw some tweet, who read a Facebook post from a guy who heard somebody on TV. And, and, and the end user is like, I am certain I'm right about this. Half <laughs> of my phone calls, for- half my phone calls with Scott Jennings are, "Hey, did you know that no one reads today?" And <laughs> and that means like even people in the news business who are writing their own stories. <laughs> Jared, um, I'll, I'll add on the DeSantis statement, and I think it, part of his answer of sort of what differentiates me and Trump is it's clear DeSantis is a guy who has a overarching plan and vision for how to run a state or how to run a country, right? We talked about Trump being this sort of just like pundit in, in chief. And one of his criticisms of Biden and the Ukraine thing was like, people are, are wavering in their support because we have nobody telling us what we're doing, right? We, we've talked about this on the show. It's like, wait, are we doing this? Are we not doing this? Why are we, what's going, we, we are sending these missiles, but not these missiles. And so I think, DeSantis is both in that statement and then uh, in the in the Trump question has said, like, look, I'm a guy who's not only a doer, but has this overarching plan and understands, uh, you know, what the vision of my party is and what my administration is. And I think that's really different than the sort of like, you know, what's the sort of like uh, soup of the day for some of these guys? Uh, oh, I think DeSantis is, you know, I think his claim to fame is kind of anti-woke. But perhaps he's trying to rebrand that and say, don't forget, I'm also competent. Yeah. Because competence has been something which has been lacking, I think, for quite a while overall. Speaking of um, of national press coverage of some of these things and how things can be mischaracterized, Scott, just a quick word on uh, New York Times did a pretty long piece on friend of the pod, uh, Representative uh, James Comer, and, uh, the, of course, the House Oversight uh, Committee chair and getting certainly a lot of, as we all knew was going to happen once the Republicans took the majority, uh, just a, a tremendous amount of, of, of national play because of his investigations into a variety of things, including the, uh, his, his thought process of the Biden family uh, illegally benefiting from, some, from contributions from China. But, you know, I've, you know, on this podcast, we brought up uh, a variety of things. I, before I give my kind of my uh, reaction to the Times, what, what was your thought about that piece? I mean, I didn't like it. Uh, you know, I, I, I thought, uh, and it's because I know Jamie Comer, and I think some of the ways he was characterized in there uh, were not was not fair, truthfully. Um, I haven't talked to him about it, and uh, but I, I didn't like it, and um, um, I it was look, unfair. I, I just, mm-hmm. It was it was well again selectively. You know, uh, I don't know. It, it, was, it was a situation where it was uh, just a lot of anecdotes and 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 selective uh, outrage of different things but i but i what i just as again i brought it up when we had him on the the show as a as a guest the thing that to me best prepared him for the role if the if the reason they're talking to him is because of his role as the chair of the house oversight committee wouldn't they be doing some wouldn't they at least acknowledge or look into have you ever done this before have you ever done any investigations before or had any kind of approach and the the biggest thing of course in Kentucky was the bipartisan initiative when he became Agriculture commissioner and a Democrat, Adam Edelin, was auditor, and the two of them, you know, he they cooperated to be able to look into um, 
audited a former agriculture commissioner, a right. Republican, uh, Republican, and I, lieutenant governor nominee, and and frankly, a uh, a uh, celebrated. He's a, he's a, bo- he's a bona fide folk hero. Yeah, in, in Kentucky, in, 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 in Kentucky, <laughs> he is. I mean, U- University of Kentucky basketball star Richie Farmer. We're talking about. And all that, so he. T- I mean, basically, he, he that, that was a pretty big risk of Comer to go after somebody who was a folk hero in Kentucky, but he did it for the right reasons and and was able to you know achieve justice for the state. I'm saying is, but this was not necessarily a popular or a risk free move that he made in the interest of of, of looking into this. But why did that not get even a, one paragraph in that in that Times piece about looking into if they came back to Kentucky and talk about his past? Wouldn't that be a pretty uh, big part of his past? Yeah, I, look, I, I, there's a lot of things about him that, that weren't in there that I think would have been valuable. That's one of them. Um, I thought they painted. Look, I, I think it's obvious that, that there's this attempt to sort of paint this guy. Well, he used to be, you know, one of the good Republicans. Mm-hmm. Now he's one of the bad ones. And here's all the evidence of that. And, and you know, it's just kind of a trope. Like, you know, this is what these reporters want to believe about. I mean, the reality is, I think Jamie Comer has always done, he's always been a smart political operator. Don't dispute that. Uh, but I also think he's always done what he thought was right in the moment uh, on whatever issues were before him. And, and the way he's handling this committee, I think, is perfectly fine. I mean, he's answering questions and getting information the news media refuses to get about Joe Biden. Uh, and, and if I had to guess, by the way, about the way this whole thing's going to end regarding the Biden crime family, as he calls it, my guess is it's going to end in legislation. And my guess is Jared Kushner may become part of the conversation here because the legislation, and and I predict it'll be bipartisan. The legislation is going to be something around preventing presidential and vice presidential families from profiting off the back of their famous relative. And, uh, and, and that's a good place for this to end up. And you got the impression reading this article that this was just, you know, sort of total partisan gamesmanship by somebody who's, who's essentially, you know, being drug along by a bunch of people on his committee that he can't control. I don't believe that for a second. I think he's got a plan. I think he's got an end game in mind. And I think where it's going to wind up ought to please anybody who doesn't, who, who wants better government at the presidential and vice presidential level. Yeah, two quick things. One, uh, there was a line in there about, you know, nobody's built like a bigger kind of, uh, I don't know, network or whatever you want to call it in Kentucky than to McConnell than Comer. And so I think you're right, Scott, right? They're sort of, they're essentially kind of afraid of this guy being good at what he does. And so let's drag him under. The second thing is, I don't know, maybe a month and a half ago, Scott, you wrote a column about how strong the Kentucky delegation is. Last week we yeah. got a hit piece on Andy Barr. This week we've got this on <laughs> good point. Comer. So Massey, yeah. Guthrie. I may, I may have caused. I may <laughs> have watch caused out, guys. <laughs> I don't know what. Uh, I don't know who's coming for them. Maybe Axios will be next. But uh, uh, Guthrie, Massey, Rogers, watch out because uh, somebody's coming for you. So is the rule if you're in flyover country and a Republican, don't let the New York Times into your truck. If they're gonna try, if they're gonna ask to ride around with you, just make him get their own car. Just say no. Just say I, no. I think, as a former journalist, and it's we've always resented the, the the parachute journalism. People coming in, spending a day here or two days, and then thinking they know the entire state, they know all the people, but they're also to use a word from before, cherry picking or selectively mm-hmm. looking for okay, what cast of characters can I? Or what characters can I cast in my play that's going to match whatever narrative that we talked about back in the newsroom in New York? Mm-hmm. And that's unfortunate because that's, I mean, really the best people to cover these things are people who actually see them every day. To, to connect this back to the conversation we were having with uh, about DeSantis earlier, now if you work for Ron DeSantis and you picked up that article, you'd say, this is exactly why we don't play this game. Mm-hmm. It's right here. There's no way to win. There's no way to win. And, uh, and... I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, look, I, 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 Jamie Comer, I think, has been one of the most transparent, media-friendly, uh, open-book members of the House Republican Conference. He, he says yes to virtually every media engagement, whether it's a conservative media, mainstream media, whatever. He's on all the shows. He talks to the newspaper guys. He's doing radio. He's doing podcasts. He did our show. I mean – Jamie has literally opened himself up and answered every question and have been as transparent as you can possibly be. What else do you want out of somebody in this position? And I just, I don't know. I didn't think it was, I didn't think he was treated very well. Uh, and uh, I'm sure 
I'm sure there'll be more conversations about it, uh, you know, as, as we move on uh, with him, because he's going to continue to be in the absolute middle of all this storm. I mean, he's uncovered bank records. The Chinese have sent money to the Biden family, and I guess there's more bank records to get. This is serious stuff, and Jamie Comer is the one uncovering it. So I guess that I guess that explains the fury and the scrutiny on him right now from, you know, from from that side of the aisle. But anyway, I, I think Jamie's doing a good job. I think Congressman Comer and his transparency and his willingness to be open uh, should be applauded. And and what he got out of this uh, did not reflect what I think could could have been a better story. That article rehashed some uh, elements of the governor's race in Kentucky from eight years ago. Scott, you have a column in the Courier Journal of this past week. Uh, trying to cast some attention to what's been, uh, I guess there's there's been some political commercials, but not a not a lot of attention to the governor's race, which was I guess we're only what two months away or less than two months away now from the actual Republican primary. Where do we stand here? Yeah, I, I did write a piece for the Courier, and um, it was picked up by Politico Playbook, um, and and I think I think the race has been sleepy. Um, there's a Republican primary going on, and there's some good candidates in it. But it, it, it just, it's been a sleepy race. Uh, Kelly Craft uh, uh, launched some attack ads and some, uh, her, her super PAC launched some attack ads against Cameron, which kind of jolted the race a little bit. Uh, and I'd written my column before the most recent round of attack ads came out this week. I said, I thought Cameron was the front runner for the Republicans. I think Bashir is the front runner for reelection. Uh, and I was kind of analyzing some of the tactics uh, that were being employed by the various campaigns. Obviously, Kelly. And her team believe that the only way to win is to drag Daniel down. And I think Ryan Quarles and Alan Keck think that if it gets nasty between Cameron and Kraft, maybe they can hang around the rim for a tip in at the buzzer. I did a little piece on Keck, who's not very well known. He's the mayor of Somerset. Uh, he's getting some insider buzz for some of his appearances at, at various uh, business and civic group meetings. Um, so I guess more of a kind of a reset on the race. Where do we stand with two months to go? Uh, and, and at the end, I, I kind of got down to something that is just stunning to me, which is I'm not really hearing any of the Republicans attack Andy Bashir, And I just don't think Republicans are going to beat Andy Bashir by ignoring him or pretending uh, that his approval rating isn't high. It is. I mean, he is going to have to be beaten. He is not going to hand this in. He's not going to roll over. And God knows uh, the media around here ain't going to help uh, look into anything he's done. This, this He is a case against him is going to have to be prosecuted by the Republican Party, its nominee, and all of the committees and forces that go along with that. And, uh, you know, we, we had one gubernatorial primary forum the other night on Spectrum News. Kraft didn't participate, but four others did. They never they never did anything on Bashir until the 59th minute. It was a 60-minute debate. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, the whole race, in my opinion, is which of these people can actually beat Andy Bashir? And there was no discussion of that, and there is no discussion of it, and I'm just waiting for that to happen. So anyway, it's in the career. I'm probably going to write another one with about a month to go, and we'll see. We'll see. By then, I expect more campaigns will be on the air. Right now, Kraft's the only one on the air. I don't get the feeling the attack ads have taken a huge toll on Cameron, but I haven't seen any data on that just yet. I'll, I'll avoid a lot of the uh, the primary intrigue for, for obvious reasons for me, but you know, I, to pick up on your point, Scott, there, there is a case to be litigated against the governor. Yes. There, there's a case of mismanagement, of abuse of government, power hungry, putting a woke agenda in our schools, vetoing just common sense conservative legislation that falls in with the values of our people. Uh, I mean, there, there's a case to be made if anybody would, would grab hold of it and just run with it. Yeah, I, I think that um, – Particularly on education, Scott. Don't you yeah, think – I mean, I, we talked about it a well, little bit on this podcast in the past, but – I mean, look. Let's look at the facts. On his first day, he fired the Board of Education. Couldn't then find he reconstituted it. Couldn't find one Republican to put on the Board of Education. Yeah, then he puts on a bunch of his partisans. They immediately hire a education commissioner, Glass, who's in there now who is probably the most woke state education commissioner in the United States. Here in a red state, in a state that's elected almost all Republicans everywhere except the governor's office, in a state that's conservative and getting more conservative by the day, we have the most woke education commissioner in the country. 
who cares more about enforcing pronoun standards in our schools than he does in the fact than he does about the fact that our kids have some of the worst test scores on reading and math and science in the nation. And in fact, was asked, Sean, in a committee hearing, what if a teacher doesn't want to go along with your, you know, your enforcement of these pronoun standards? And he said, well, they can find another line of work. You've got an education commissioner who wants to get rid of or fire teachers who don't want to go along with woke indoctrination in Kentucky? When we have a teacher yeah, shortage. A, when we have a teacher where, shortage. Which Bashir himself talks about all the time. So, yeah, there's a case to be made here on education. And that doesn't even touch the fact that the schools were closed for way too long, unnecessarily. That's never been dealt with either. There, There is an education case. In some ways, Bashir is like Andrew Cuomo, you know, pre-fall, pre-Cuomo fall. Like, there was a period of time where Cuomo was the darling of the left and the darling of the national media, and he couldn't do anything wrong. And then finally, someone decided to look into it and how wrong he was and how much bad judgment he'd employed and how much of a charlatan he was and who was personally kind of a nasty person who had done some terrible things. That case is yet to come on Bashir. But if we're going to get there in the fall, it's got to come. It's got to come. And uh, I'm hoping one of these candidates grabs a hold of that uh, and the party decides to decides to do it. We'll see. But this this whole education issue, guys, this commissioner of education we have, I mean, uh, you would expect this out of the California education commissioner or Oregon or Washington State or something. This is K- Kentucky, for goodness sakes. On the race itself, Scott, we, with the the dearth of, of polling at all on this, and, and frankly, not that a poll coming out now, I don't know how helpful it would be from a public standpoint, because I think we've learned from the past that polling is more about a trend than it is about a predictor. You know, do we have any sense of a direction at all? Have you heard anything behind the scenes or anything else about you know what? Whether you said before that maybe some of Kraft's ads, cause she's the only one who's really active on the advertising front, that have yeah. have landed at all. I mean, when do we get a sense of where we are? Yeah, we we haven't had a public poll in a while in the race. We had some back in January. So I don't I don't really have anything to report on that. My my instinct is is Cameron remains the front runner and he remains pretty far ahead. My instinct is also that Kelly Kraft has run enough advertising to in, increase her own name ID and that I, that probably has had some impact on her standing. Uh, I don't think they have drugged Daniel down yet, uh, really. And the other candidates, Quarles and Keck and the others, and they've done no advertising at all. So I would expect them to be about where they were. You know, when the last polling was done in January, February, I would expect most of the campaigns with resources to be on the air in April. You know, the it's mid uh, was it May 16th is Election Day. Yep. You know, my guess is Cameron and, and Cameron forces probably will have the resources to to prosecute a five or six week advertising campaign. Quarrels, maybe four weeks. We'll see. Heck, maybe less. So Kraft has owned the airwaves, uh, as you said, Joe, all to herself. But that that'll. That'll probably come to an end in, in, in two two to three weeks, I would think. I don't know anything. I'm I'm not calling any shots on any of these races, but that would be my instinct. Well, time is, is running short here uh, before the primary, Jared. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll add quickly on the, the Bashir attacks, too. He obviously hasn't faced a tremendous amount of, of criticism generally, right? The media is sort of sympathetic to him. Um, I, I'll be interested to see... Because I, I tend to think there's a lot to attack him on. I don't know that there's a statistical thing on his record that has been positive in the last four years. Crime is up. Test scores are down. Uh, you know, uh, every significant workforce or economic data point is either stagnant or worse than it was four years ago. Crime. The only one that crime. The, uh, crime in our cities, and uh, we talk about Louisville all the time, but Lexington as well. Rural, cr- rural crime, crime, right? Uh, in a lot of these counties, up too. Sixty-eight percent. The the only one, the only data point I've ever seen them tout is uh, the unemployment rate, which any yeah. real economist will tell you is a completely illegitimate way to. Uh, see how strong your economy is. Uh, workforce participation stagnant or below where it was pre-COVID. Uh, new jobs and and people entering the workforce. Uh, minorities and women entering the workforce are still at low numbers. And so, I don't know that he has some strong record. I get that he's like 
likable. He's got this. Kind I would of say bad on the, I, thing I would, to I would him, counter but... it to say on the economic development front, the perception at least, when yeah. you look at all the different announcements that have been made, the Ford plant in particular, the SK battery plant in Hardin County. Now, of course, the General Assembly and the leaders there would say, hold on. This all began under yes, under, under right to life, or right to right to life, right, <laughs> right, right, right yes. to work uh, being passed, and that was only that was really that was the, the beginning of all these investments. But the well, person, Andy Bashir also doesn't want workers being born either. Uh, so. well, <laughs> <laughs> but, my, but my point being is the person who is the governor at the time still that's the power of incumbency. Oh well, yeah. yeah, that's I mean, what I mean you know, about the the chance to attack him on this. Right, this started in 2017 when the the General Assembly made a commitment to make the tax structure more. Uh, pro-business, which to, he vetoed, to, uh, repeal prevailing wage and all these sorts of things. Right. And so, again, when they when we really start to dig in on his record, he loves to say the economy is on fire when they when it's he on has fire, to, when he has to go face to face on these real numbers and how this really happened. I don't see anything in the last four years that he has significantly improved in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. I think that they they look at, they look at these things. I think all of our elections well, have have been nationalized. I think all of these elections have been nationalized, and then everyone's looking at these things and like, what is going on, and where do you fall on these issues that that I'm I care about, and and I think that these other issues matter more. And this all I think some I think some of it has been nationalized, but it is true if you look at governors' races around the country for the last two cycles, very few incumbents have lost. I think maybe two, Matt Bevin and. That dude who was corrupt as hell out in Nevada, this lack in this last <laughs> cycle. So, so in those cases, what did you have? You had a, a a Republican in a Republican state who couldn't get reelected, who tried to nationalize the race and failed, and then you had corruption. Uh, everywhere else, you see incumbents of both parties winning. Uh, you know, um, and so I, I think there's there is a lot of nationalization. I'm not disputing that. I do. There's something about governors' races though that I do think. Um, do lend themselves to some crossover voting because of local circumstances. Uh, and um, in this post-COVID era, I, I, you know, it's hard to analyze exactly what's causing it. But th- I'll just say the last November was a lot more pro-incumbent than I thought it was going to be. And doesn't and, and, and does that continue? I don't, I don't know. And this would, be the, this would be the case for any incumbent across the country right now. With with coffers of of state budgets and and local governments being able to get these checks, you know, these check presentations yeah, every yeah. week with all this newfound uh, inflation reduction act air quotes, uh, you know, in in play as well as infrastructure funding. I'm saying at this point, it's just a wash in cash. I mean, that, yeah. that, that is the greatest and reelection campaign ever. News stories every day across right. Kentucky of Andy Bashir. Well, cut and across this county, and check. I would think for any incumbent, though, right? Right, any incumbent. But so, Scott, I mean, is is isn't that just a, a pretty uphill climb for any uh, uh, rival? Yeah, this money. I mean, it's turned all these governors into game show hosts. I mean, they're just running around <laughs> with huge checks and cash and prizes for, for all the contestants. Yes, it's hard to beat an incumbent governor without a scandal. I would argue that some of this stuff going in our schools is a scandal and could be interpreted as such if the correct campaign is prosecuted. And, uh, I mean, I think it's a scandal what this education commissioner is doing. I really do. And I think most parents would see it that way. And to Sean's point, there's a way to connect the nationalization of our politics to something that's happening right here in our own state capital. And so I, I think you may be able, if somebody could, prosecute that case, you may be able to get the best of both both worlds, where you take a national sort of macro conversation that's going on about wokeness in schools and this indoctrination and say, oh my gosh, it's happening right here in my backyard. I had no idea. So I, I think it. I, I think that campaign's there to be run. I think the economic development stuff he's going to run on, I think honestly Andy Bashir is going to run on something like look, I, I work with this Republican legislature to pass bills more than Matt Bevin ever did. I don't know what your problem is. I mean, that's probably what he's going to do. And, uh, and the way to defeat that is to say, you know, you're not leading anybody, you're following. Uh, and the only thing you're leading on is this epidemic of woke indoctrination uh, and liberalism. That's what you're leading on. We're leading on all the stuff that matters, and you're leading on all the stuff that nobody likes. So I, I think that's, that's, the, that's the debate that, that we're going to see unfold. And, you know, some of this will be a resources question. I mean, Bashir's going to have resources. The Republicans are going to need resources to, to prosecute the case. It won't be cheap, and it won't be done overnight. 
Seen, read, heard. There's no Kevin's quiz tonight from I seen or read or heard. So sorry about that, Kevin. But do you have anything else for us? Uh, I do have a quick one. Uh, this this past weekend, I saw and heard uh, at a great event. We got to celebrate our good friend Sean here and his uh, milestone birthday. He turned 30, and we got some of his close friends together. And uh, so I want to take this chance to publicly say happy birthday, Sean. We're really happy you're here. Happy birthday, happy birthday Sean. Sean. Thank you. Good Dave. job, Sean, for staying alive. Congratulations. <laughs> Keep doing it. You did it. Yeah. Thank you, you did it 30 times. I'm a, I'm officially middle-aged. What? No. <laughs> Let's hope I think not. in your heart, I think in your heart, Sean, you were born middle-aged. That is gonna <laughs> yes, that's probably right. <laughs> Which I, 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 I resemble that remark as well. Okay, Sean, what do we got for us, Sean? What, what are we reading this week? Uh, yeah, I'm still reading that same book, so I'd, I'd like to just pass. Though I did get a... Pass? A, oh. I, I, did, I did get a, a push notification on something that was like particularly weird. Uh, while we sit here from CNN, Scott, a few locks of hair reveal new details about Beethoven's health and a family secret. So I look oh. forward to if that's not a teaser. I don't know what I it look, is. I look forward to, to reading that later and seeing seeing what secrets can be unlocked. <laughs> nice by uh, a lock. That's great. Oh. Thanks for that. Oh, Thanks it. for that report. You're welcome. Jerry, what push notifications have you gotten on your phone uh, the last five no, minutes? Nothing. nothing oh my gosh, DoorDash, 15% off. Yeah. Uh, no, nothing about other people's hair. I don't. I didn't sign up for that one. Um, my scene right heard, uh, World Baseball Classic. We, we, we've talked yeah. a little bit about it. was awesome. Awesome. Uh, oh, wait, wait, wait. While you're, while you're describing this, please tell me you have the call of one of the Japanese. Yes, I do. So yes, I, I will, all so right. this, this, this is going to parlay into my <laughs> okay. scene right third. So um, I've got the, so a few plays. So, so long story short, I sort of remember like Japanese players coming in the MLB and it being a big thing. Um, Dice came Matsuzaka when the Red Sox signed him. It was like, who is this guy? Nobody's ever even like seen him pitch, but apparently he had that like gyro ball he threw and it was like all these crazy things. Now it's becoming a little bit more normalized. I think you could argue Shohei Otani is the face of baseball at this point. Dude might be the best athlete like in the world right now. Uh, the Red Sox have Masataka Yoshida who will be joining them this season. There's this phenom kid, Roki Sasaki, 21-year-old who hit, was hitting 102 uh, the other day. And so I've kind of caught the like Japanese baseball fever a little bit. One of the problems is you can't see any of the games, the, the, the timing and all these things. There's nobody that streams them. And so I, uh, I'm going to pull up the clip here because if you weren't sold on Japanese baseball, the call of uh, the walk-off from the other night is absolutely electric. And so I'm going to play that very quickly. Sayonara. Sayonara. Incredible. So good. Sorry to everyone's eardrums. Yeah. I mean, that's how good it I mean, you just don't really hear that. I mean, I love John Smoltz, but he's just, he's not electric like that. And so, um, I don't know. We got to figure out a way to get Japanese baseball on uh, American televisions. I, I These guys are awesome. They're electric. Show, hey, I mean, I'm sure there's so much talent over there we don't even know about. So, And on Tuesday night, the match that matchup everyone was in baseball world was waiting for. This is my scene read and heard because I was watching uh, Shohei Otani pitching then and against uh, the, the batter was Mike Trout, the, the teammates from the Los Angeles Angels. And the great thing about this is there was no pitch clock. And so as a result, you were able to have the suspense build up you know, throughout that entire thing. And had it been a pitch clock, all of that moment would have been ruined, but undermined would have been over. But instead, we have Scott Jennings in the L.A. Times still suggesting that we, that we basically mutate the DNA of baseball, Major League Baseball. So, Scott, the good, news is, the good news is is the World Baseball Classic didn't adhere to your standards instead. But now, now we'll have regular baseball starting with, with your pitch clock. But anyway, what was your scene, Red Herd? Yes, Joe, I will get off your lawn. <laughs> Fine. I will exit your lawn. Thank you for that rant. My scene, Red Herd, I just, <laughs> Joe Biden this week. I, because of Trump, because of all the stuff, you know, all news coverage has been oriented around Trump this week. You may have missed Joe Biden literally failing 
to put more than just a couple of English words together. Total incoherence on a couple of occasions. Jared, do we have them? I'm proud to use my authority under the Antiquities Act to establish the, and I, I want you to know it's a big deal, the <laughs> Havanaqua May. I, I'm, I'm having trouble. Thank you. I got it. So there was one. He was trying to. I just he was know trying. That's- <laughs> so that's one, and then we've got him trying to recite a poem here. Oh, Yo, oh, this is even a, better. Oh, we have a double-barreled Biden. Oh, okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. Poet, Cuban-American, Richard Blanco, uh, returned to a poem he wrote from the second inaugural of Barack and Me. A poem, one today, it says, And always one moon, like a silent drum, tapping at every rooftop and every window on every in, of every county. Country. Let me start this over again. <laughs> I'm getting so... Intimidated by being here. <laughs> and always oh. one moon, like a silent drum, tapping on every rooftop and every window of one country, a county, county. <laughs> all of us facing the stars. Hope, a new constellation, waiting for us to map it, waiting for us to name it together. You know, that's what we, you know, hope is, uh, I was once asked by Xi Jinping to define America, for real. We were in the Tibetan Plateau. I said possibilities, no joke. hope. That's a Speaking, speaking of antiquities. Poet, <laughs> it's close I to mean, all in, week. The, in the foothills in the Himalayas. <laughs> I mean, he just all week long. I mean, it's getting worse and worse. And we just, you know, we just have to pretend like this is normal. It's not normal, okay? It's not normal. It's getting worse and worse. A lot of this just never came to light during the 2020 presidential campaign because he didn't have to run a campaign. And I maintain that in this next campaign, he's not going to be able to hide from it. He can't hide from it as president. The campaign's going to amplify it even more. So anyway, I I saw those clips this week, and everybody was focused on Trump's sex paperwork. But I've got my eye on the ball, which is Joe Biden can barely string two sentences together. We don't parachute into flyover country. We live here sometimes, Scott. But Scott, yeah. is, Scott is our delegate in New York and CNN. Thank you for your fine service, young man. Kevin, Sean. Thank you. Jared, I'm Joe. Have a great week. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.